Thank you very much. Appreciate the uh, introduction and thank you everyone who has joined us today, either live or on uh, audio. We appreciate the opportunity to speak to this very prestigious group of people in this organization and appreciate the opportunity to continue work with the uh, Boston Bar Association. So thank you very much. Um, I'll give you a brief introduction to myself, uh, hand it over to my colleague Michael to introduce himself and then we'll get into the uh, we'll get into the agenda for today. Uh, we're going to try to leave some time for Q&A at the end, uh, but there is a questions uh, function. So if you want to submit questions uh, during the course of the presentation, please feel free to do so. Uh, and we will get to those uh, as best that we can. Um, so by way of introduction, my name is Jonathan Kellerman. I'm a partner at StoneTurn. Um, I've been with the firm for about a year. Uh, I uh, am one of the partners that works on uh, our life sciences practice and more specifically uh, in our compliance risk management and corporate governance space, uh, particularly focused on areas like data analytics, proactive compliance uh, and strategy and, and operations in the compliance space. Uh, I have a very strong life sciences background. I've been in life sciences for and compliance for 27 years uh, prior to joining StoneTurn. Uh, I was the executive vice president and global chief compliance officer at Allergan uh, and uh, sat on the executive leadership team with the CEO, uh, had a really unique opportunity to build uh, a global compliance program there, uh, and in particular, um, build out a data analytics platform about six years ago uh, that was very um, cutting edge in the, in the life sciences space at the time. Um, one of the reasons why I'm here today is, is to be able to talk about that with you, uh, talk about the advantages of that and, and the, you know, the opportunities now to really differentiate uh, and gain a competitive advantage through something as important as data analytics. Uh, prior to Allergan, I was uh, at PwC for 20 years. I was a partner and I co-led our um, governance, compliance, and, and risk management practice in life sciences. So happy to be here today. Thank you very much. And I'll turn it over to, to my colleague, Michael. Thanks, Jonathan. And I'll just echo Jonathan real quick. Thanks for having us. Look forward to presenting to this group today. Uh, my name is Michael Costa. I'm a managing director with StoneTurn in our Chicago office, and I'm a managing director in our data analytics practice. And we've been doing this for about six years, but my career has largely been in data analytics in various capacities. Started in advisory and evaluation functions, so your acquisitions and mergers. Uh, went over to higher education for a little bit, uh, still in the data analytics realm, doing consulting for uh, institutions that had large footprints across the United States. And then for the last six years, I've been at Stone Term focusing primarily in the areas of investigations, litigation consulting, and compliance analytics, uh, which dovetails into Jonathan's work. Um, you know, data analytics kind of touches all of our service lines, but it's also a service line at Stone Term, you know, wherein we do sort of data analytics consulting into the market and uh, help people more directly with their data needs. Um, yeah, that, that's a little bit about me. Sounds good. Thanks, Michael. Uh, if we want to jump ahead to slide five, um, that would be great. I believe the, the, the slides, yep, there we go. Um, and I believe these slides are also available to everyone um, after the event as well. So we're happy to make them available if you like. Uh, no need to uh, worry about uh, taking copious notes. Uh, so why are we talking about uh, data analytics as part of next generation compliance? Uh, one of the kind of fundamental premises here is that compliance as a profession is at a crossroads right now. Um, <clears throat> as someone that's been in this space uh, for, for well over a quarter decade, um, you know, I see in, in, you know, in my experience, both being in-house and being an advisor, uh, you know, to an industry as regulated as life sciences, that 
the compliance profession, which has largely been built on traditional compliance programs that were defined by governance, uh, government standards, uh, like corporate integrity agreements, uh, large settlement agreements, monitorships, et cetera, um, they, they, are, they have limitations to those. And right now we're at a juncture where the compliance function as a profession has a very unique opportunity to redefine its value uh, and its importance in an organization. Um, and being a stronger enabler of business uh, and providing a different level of support and insight to the business and to leadership and to the board as well. So it's a, it's a very unique opportunity to gain a competitive advantage within an organization by kind of shifting from the traditional way of looking at compliance, which was based on retrospective audits, where you would you know, look at testing transactions in silos six months, 12 months ago, telling people what they did right or wrong in the past. Obviously, compliance had been traditionally very rules-based. There was a lot of process and bureaucracy. And that old school fit does not necessarily translate into today's world. And what we're seeing now are opportunities for compliance professionals to kind of redefine and innovate in that space, uh, whether it's through providing business insight, operational improvement, operational excellence services, uh, value-based compliance. But I think the key driver right now where we are as, uh, you know, as a profession is in this area of data analytics. Um, not only is this something that's highly recognized by the regulators, um, but it's, it's an opportunity to really drive a lot of value in real time into an organization. If we skip ahead to slide six, you know, one, one, of, you know, one of the challenges today is that traditional programs, as I noted, are limited, right, in terms of what they do around analytics. Generally speaking, most organizations tend to have a very audit-focused um, compliance program. Monitoring is generally limited to some live monitoring, maybe some email review, et cetera. But it's, you know, it's, it's very much focused on looking backwards. And it's also very um, isolated and siloed in the sense that individuals and compliance professionals tend to look at transactions in silos. They'll look at sales data. They'll look at um, prescription data. They will look at um, you know, payment data. And looking at data in silos is helpful for a very specific activity, but what it fails to do is look at data holistically in terms of how real life occurs. Because in real life, no transaction exists in a vacuum. They, that, and, and multiple risk areas impact how that one transaction will occur. So because of that kind of backwards looking, that retroactive looking, that siloed look, there is, there is that, it's, it's kind of hampering compliance to be able to be a, you know, a value add in terms of anticipating where risk is, providing intelligent business insight, and being able to prepare for and mitigate risk. So you really want to flip the script from being the firefighter that's always putting out fires, and that's always, you know, reacting like whack-a-mole to risks and risk events and, and investigations. You want to shift that into how do I be more predictive about risk, being smart about where I put my resources, and allowing us to actually prevent risk events from occurring in the first place. And, and data analytics is the, is the engine to do that. Um, the regulators are focused on this very significantly. Obviously, everyone's very much aware the DOJ issued new guidance uh, a year ago uh, that includes data analytics as an important part of now what is considered an effective compliance program. 
So it's another element now. It's shifting that focus from just doing audits that provide assurance around controls to actually having um, a more holistic look at data and having that data tell you how you are performing against your standards. Um, we see this in a lot of the work that we do around monitorships, investigations, uh, a lot of the support we provide to clients where they are starting to get credit for having more advanced data analytics capabilities as part of their compliance monitoring program. And that's very important for companies that are getting in trouble or going sideways with the regulators coming forward either through voluntary disclosure or through some other means where it's important to say, we're doing what's right. We're thinking more creatively, a little bit more advanced around how we manage risk. Um, you know, and, and, and it's a very important note here to add to the fact that this is now an important component of what, what is really considered an effective compliance program. What we see though, is that a lot of companies understand this conceptually, but are having a hard time executing this and, and, and are ha having a hard time kind of wrapping their heads around doing this. Uh, there was a 2020 report that we talked about here from CBI that really talked about you know, 11% of responding companies are actually only doing this in, in actuality today in truly looking at data, not in silos and, and not retroactively, but looking at data in real time and looking at it holistically. So there's a tremendous opportunity here for us as advisors to work with our clients to, to help them think through what does good data analytics look like? How do we right fit that for an organization? And how do we leverage that to be a very valuable tool now going forward? There's, there's a ton of reasons why this makes sense. We've talked about some of them and you can jump ahead to the next slide. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've obviously talked about you know, how now it's part of the vernacular for an effective compliance program. We've talked about how the regulators um, are, are giving credit now for the work that companies do to embrace analytics as part of their monitoring program. Uh, we talked about the business insight that can be provided in real time. Uh, so there's, a, there's an internal intrinsic value to this. But it's also important to note that the regulators now are getting smart on analytics and they're coming up the curve quickly and they're using their own data analytics capabilities to target potential wrongdoing in clients, in companies. And this is happening obviously significantly in financial services, uh, particularly around um, you know, financial transactions and fraud. Uh, this is happening in the cyberspace very significantly. Uh, we're seeing this not just in the US, we're seeing this outside the US. So we're seeing an uptick now in the analytics that are being used by the regulators to kind of go after and pinpoint risk. Um, you know, we, we're seeing a good example of that is the work that the government is doing to analyze payments made to providers during COVID uh, for provider relief. They're looking at the data associated with those payments and how those payments were being used and trying to identify fraudulent activities or misappropriation or misuse uh, of those funds. And they're going to target companies based upon that data analytics approach. So if our clients are doing, I mean, if the regulators are doing it, our clients need to be doing that as well. So it's not just the expectations by the regulators that this is part of the, you know, part of what effective compliance looks like. It's also important because they're doing it. So we need to make sure that our clients are getting out in front of this as well and incorporating some element of analytics to look at data in real time. You can move ahead to slide, please. I think this is relevant for our discussion today, particularly to this group, 
in terms of looking at the support as two sides to one coin. Um, having worked in-house, um, my general counsel um, was one of my strongest partners. We worked hand in hand, not just because we had to, but because it made sense, right? If you look at risk management in any capacity uh, and the, the ability to provide assurance and the, the ability to provide protection to a company and to think through controls and to think through uh, interpretations of laws and how that applies to our business, you have to think about legal and compliance as the same side to the uh, to two sides of the same coin, working in harmony together. And there's a significant opportunity to kind of frame out how legal and compliance can think about you know, data analytics. It's not just an IT exercise, right? Compliance obviously plays a very critical role in this as part of their monitoring capabilities, particularly as it uses the risk assessment to determine a risk matrix, to weight scores and to weight risk, to validate data sources and the completeness and accuracy of data, to identify the risk points, what are the levers we're gonna pull, geography, product, program type, et cetera, uh, running the analytics, doing the analysis of the analytics. But legal plays a very important role in this process as well because they provide the foundational interpretations of laws and regulations. And, and that's the critical driver for things like risk assessments, for prioritization of risk, for identifying you know, those key levers, whether it's geography or product or program type, et cetera. Providing counsel on whether or not what we're finding requires a more in-depth assessment or more in-depth analysis, whether or not we have to bring in counsel to provide privilege on what we're doing. Um, you know, that, that kind of next steps course of action um, is very important. You know, one of, the, one of the challenges as lawyers that we tend to hear, um, compliance professionals tend to hear from the legal teams, when you start to do this level of intensive data analytics is, one of the questions I get all the time is, are we really just kicking up dust? And what does that do for our risk profile and our uh, need to potentially voluntarily disclose things. So this is, a, this is a discussion that the legal department and the compliance team have to have together. So to establish that expectation on what is going to be done within the company to identify data points that are going to be looked at on a regular basis in real time, and what are we going to do with the findings? What are we going to do with the information that comes out? If we identify trends, if we identify outliers to our standards, what do we do with that? Does that automatically trigger some escalation to the board? Does that automatically trigger a voluntary disclosure? Uh, does that automatically trigger an investigation? Or is it just that we're going to continue to monitor? We're going to use the data uh, to, to be informative about where risk is. We're going to then uh, you know, adjust the control environment. We're going to increase our training. Whatever it is that we're going to do, we're going to respond to it, be responsible in terms of that response, and we're going to address those issues. And, or, or are we gonna do some of these other things? So it's very important that the legal function, the compliance function work together to think through what are we doing with the data once we get it? And what's our responsibility? And how do we tier and triage the, the, this data uh, in a very relevant way? So it, it's, it's very important that both functions work together for this to actually work out right. Otherwise, you could be in a situation where there are things being brought up or introduced that are not being addressed appropriately with respect to privilege, with respect to disclosures, with respect to uh, other types of you know, statements that are made by the company. So something to think about as you're having conversations with your compliance professionals 
either a client's or if you're working in-house in a legal function, uh, working with your compliance officer and their teams uh, on thinking through the infrastructure necessary to make a data analytics program work very effectively. I think I'll stop talking for a minute and grab a drink as my esteemed colleague Michael takes over for a few minutes. Thanks, Jonathan. Maybe we can move to the next slide, please. Great. So we're talking a lot about data analytics in general terms, but just to kind of put a, a face on it, uh, data analytics can be applied to basically any aspect of a compliance program, every industry, every aspect of the operational um, reporting of a business, or even the revenue generated side of a business. So we have a couple examples for each of these uh, elements, but I'll, I'll jump into some that I'm actually working on today to really put you know, a real face on what data analytics looks like in these contexts. So in the bribery and corruption realm, as you can imagine, uh, expenses are, are often used in this type of analysis. And we do this type of work constantly. It seems like time and expense together are, are two very powerful data sets that almost every institution has some form or fashion of. And individually, each one is interesting. Putting them together uh, is more so. In the, in the context of bribery and corruption, you start to layer in things like vendor master list and understanding of who the payments are going out to, understand who works in a particular vendor or corporation and how relationships may exist with those third parties, really paints a, a broader picture of potential bribery or corruption that may be happening there. But as Jonathan alluded to, there's also a lot of gains that can happen just understanding this data in any institution. A lot of what we see here is, is not necessarily just as a, uh, reading this data is not just a way to uh, find bribery and corruption, but it's a way just to, to understand the operations of a business and uh, more minor forms of, of problems or fraud even. In the case of time and expense, it could be um, duplicate expense submissions. It could be someone trying to um, work with whatever uh, policies may exist and trying to stay under certain thresholds of time or of expense thresholds or working time to get undue overtime. And this data, it's uh, again, kind of pervasive at every company and something that can easily be used both in bribery and corruption as well as more generally. In healthcare compliance, working on a project right now, which is very interesting in which there's alleged kickbacks from 2014 for a healthcare company that provided drugs and services to a number of entities. And the alleged kickback activity is, is generally based on uh, anecdote or qualitative findings such that you know, certain drugs may have been um, provided at below cost or below market rates. And this is a, a, uh, an example where the drug prices were based on a headcount and a per diem setting. So understanding the exact cost per drug take some extrapolation and certainly some data work. Uh, tackling this problem on the onset required your classic email review, um, understanding and interviewing people related to the, the P&L side of the business and those who may have been responsible for setting the per diem rates. But all of that, again, is still very qualitative and anecdotal. And where data analytics, I think, is, was really powerful and is really powerful in this particular instance is allows us to look at the actual line-by-line -line records of drugs that were uh, issued, the amounts being paid in, for those drugs and the amounts received in a per diem rate back for those drugs. And it allows you to put yourself in the context of what was happening in 2014 contemporaneously and what was driving business decisions at those times. And you can actually kind of recreate 
you know, 2014 or 2015, respectively, understanding what people may have been thinking, what what comparable facilities may have been charging for drugs, what was the cost enjoyed by this particular company to receive these drugs in bulk, and how many of their decisions, again, contemporaneously, been been right, whereas with looking back, qualitatively, you may see certain instances where, yeah, the, the overall cost per drug did, see, or the price per drug did seem to be below market or below cost, but in a general sense, you can apply more more thoughtful ethics behind it if, if at the time the, these decisions made sense, again, uh, with the context of data and the, the surrounding facilities that, that were being, um, that were operationalized at that time. Um, from a financial reporting perspective, we're working with a, we'll call it a services firm right now, that uh, has alleged um, issues in which some of their recruiters have been falsifying the amount of revenue generation that their recruities uh, are thought to bring into the institution. And this is an example where the recruiters are trying to meet certain thresholds for the purposes of their bonuses or um, variable comp at the end of the year. So if they need to bring in a million dollars of revenue, they may falsify some records. Um, th this in and of itself is certainly a data exercise, understanding um, who is entering data, where that data may have not been consistent with reality. But it becomes a, an SEC issue and a, a financial reporting issue when the, these projections may have been involved in financial reporting or projections that lead to financial reporting externally and therefore may impact sales, uh, the stock price of a, of a public institution. So it began as an investigation looking into the potential few bad actors and a few bad apples on a recruiting side, ended up being a financial reporting exercise and an SEC defense exercise in understanding how this may impact financial statements. And moreover, it, it becomes defensive because you can play with some sensitivities and understand if there was one bad actor, does that really impact things? If this was a pervasive practice, does that, does that impact things differently? And really give the company a sense of where their risks may be and, and how to defend off potential issues, either proactively or reactively down the road. And then finally, the securities trading. You know, I think compliance and in, in, uh, data analytics becomes very interesting when it starts to hit the revenue generating functions of an institution. And while this isn't something I'm working on today, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, we ended a large four-year engagement with a, a very large public European bank. And part of that engagement was to understand and, and proactively help their um, trade surveillance, communication surveillance, and transaction monitoring functions at the bank. These are functions that serve, compliance functions that serve the revenue generation functions of the bank. Your trading is obviously where a lot of money is being made. The trade surveillance function is looking for market abuse, and the communication surveillance function is looking for anecdotes of market abuse and or people uh, collaborating or cooperating in ways they may not, perhaps should not be. And what we what we found was the trade surveillance function worked okay. It, it looked for anomalous activity in the market, flagged it, and someone had to review that trade activity to determine if it was actual market abuse. But largely, it was uh, a lot of false positives, a lot of flags that didn't materialize anything, and it became a, a volume game, and people were just closing alerts. Communication surveillance was, was a similar story. You know, every time someone said something on a phone, that, that would have triggered uh, a voice alert 
someone had to review it, it was usually out of context. Emails, as you can imagine, if you do a control F for you know, certain words uh, or exclamation points or whatever may be considered volatile communications, it's gonna trigger a lot of alerts, especially with traders. But it was actually the data analytics of taking these two different systems, combining them in a way that made sense in a data analytics platform and reviewing the metadata of calls, the timestamps, who the calls were between, in coordination with potential market abuse activities, where we were able to call out a lot of the noise and really focus on the, the alerts and the communications that were most relevant to potential market abuse. And we found you know, a lot more lift in both identifying market abuse, but also proactively getting in front of certain traders who may have been on the fringes of market abuse or had certain relationships that may have been considered problematic. Uh, but this is all thanks to data analytics, you know, kind of combining disparate data sources and putting them together in a way that makes sense and allows the end user, which may be uh, an analyst or an investigator in this case, or even the legal team at this bank to, to get a better picture of what's happening and a more consistent message on, on the alerts that, they're, that they needed to review. Um, and that, that's about one example from each of these. I don't know if there's anything on here you wanted to touch on, Jonathan, or we can move to the next slide. No, no, you're doing great. Keep moving. All right. So why invest in data analytics? Obviously, my, my anecdotes may have spoke to some of this, but you know, first and foremost, data analytics in any context helps you see the big picture. And, and in fact, big picture and small picture. So big picture, this is trends. This is looking at um, financial data across many years to understand is revenue going up or down. But in a compliance context, it could be understanding if alert volumes are changing in a way that's meaningful by a specific geography or for a specific practice at a bank. It could be looking at healthcare and understanding if drug prices were trending down in a general sense, and that may be impacting um, you know, the, the revenue uh, expectations that, that were uh, set out in 2014, as I outlined earlier. And, and all these trends, while perhaps a available in some summary financial reporting or similar. The trends by geography and the tr trends by um, the various cuts of data that are meaningful to the, the analysis is only available with data analytics. Look, taking many disparate line, line item level detail, um, summarizing it in, in a, a context of uh, visual analytics or even just your classic pivot table allows you to drill into the segments that make sense to understand trends and where they may be worth looking into. Flip that on its head and anomalies are sort of the opposite of that. So in millions of records, sometimes you're looking for that, that needle in the haystack or that, that anomalous activity that in and of itself might not be very interesting, but in the context of the broader data set, maybe that, right? If a, a big high powered attorney spends a lot of money uh, on dinners a lot, you're not going to see any anomalous activity if there's a thousand dollar dinner. But if you know someone in the back of house operations at a bank all of a sudden has a thousand dollar dinner that that's run through their expense system, that's kind of odd. And that these are the type of anomalies that may not a thousand dollars may not have raised a flag or nine hundred ninety nine dollars may not have raised a flag. But put that anomaly in the context of the data, and all of a sudden it becomes a lot more interesting. Um, Data analytics can use to be tell to tell a compelling story. So, 
visual analytics is one of our favorite applications of data analytics, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But you know what what data analytics ought to do, and what we try to do at StoneTurn is use it to not just find an answer to the investigation, or not just perhaps uh, apply automation to compliance operations, but really it's to help inform what's happening at an organization, what's happening at a business. And you do that by, you know, combining these disparate data sets, um, applying visual analytics and looking for, <coughs> and sorry, <coughs> Apologies, something in my throat there. Uh, <laughs> lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah, basically, where you're taking disparate data sets, combining them in a way that's meaningful for the end user and allows your, your business professional, your compliance professional, whoever, to uh, understand what's happening in their organization. <clears throat> um, uncover relationships is the next column here. Data analytics is. I apologize. Jonathan, if you could take over it. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I, I got you. Hopefully, uh, am I on mute? No, good. So um, I, I think the key here, the key message here is that, that there is um, a question of context um, in that there are limitations to looking at data necessarily in silos. And um, if you just look at a transaction, if you look at just a type of transaction, it will give you information and potentially give you trends. But what it won't do is necessarily give you the context of that as it relates to other types of transactions. Uh, and it doesn't paint a full holistic picture of what's actually happening um, in, in the context of that transaction. What, what good data analytics will do that will allow you to correlate different data points together. So moving from the looking at data in a transaction basis and a siloed basis to looking at data holistically and looking at correlating multiple data points together in real time, it will not only allow you to have better context of what is actually occurring in real life and doing so in real time, it'll also allow you um, to either advise your client or work with your client to ask smarter questions right, about what does this really mean? What do these trends and patterns mean? Does it mean that we have a breakdown in the control environment? Does it mean that we have um, a lack of ability to train effectively or our training isn't sticky enough in terms of its effectiveness, right? Are there key risk areas that we need to focus on more than others, right? So these data points, these trends, these outliers become indicative of and directional in terms of where risk is and going to be, not where it was, but where it's going to be and how do we ensure that we have the right control environment in place to mitigate those risks, to be able to do what it is we need to do from a business perspective. We may be launching a new product or a new service. Um, you know, there may be um, a new type of contract that you're entering into or a new type of relationship you're entering into. You may be entering into a new geography. By using that data, it allows you to actually anticipate where risk is going to be in a quantitative way so that you can put the right controls in place on the front end so that 
you don't have to be, you know, the, you know, compliance doesn't have to be the function that's always slowing the business down, that's always putting up barriers, that's always saying, no, we can't do that, we have to stop that. If you can put the right controls in place on the front end, anticipating the risk based on the data, then the business can run a lot smoother, a lot quicker, a lot more efficiently while you're also managing risk at the same time. So that's really what we're trying to convey here is that there's a lot more context and a lot more information you're going to get by correlating those data points together. Move ahead to the next slide. I'm back, Jonathan. Oh, good. Thank you for taking over. No worries. Um, I like this slide a lot because, you know, I think everyone probably heard the the iceberg metaphor. You know, is sometimes, uh, or what you can see is sometimes very minor compared to the overall picture, or or what's hiding below the, the surface is really what's what's dangerous. Um, what I what I take away from this slide, and what I would kind of ask anyone on this call to take away from this slide, is the difference between continuous monitoring versus your kind of classic, as Jonathan put it, six month, twelve month audit or sampling selection type audit. Sampling selection, to start with the, the kind of top layer there, it's your classic 25 um, or sample size of 25 transactions or expenses or time entries or whatever the case may be that the audit team goes and looks at and says, you know, is there fraud here? If not, then we're probably okay. And maybe they do it once per quarter or per year for a given geography or service line. And, and this tends to be somewhat resource intensive. It tends to be um, not fruitful whatsoever. And it's just sort of the way things are done because it's the way things have always been done. Also to Jonathan's point, it's, it's very retrospective. You're looking back, you're, you're trying to figure out what happened, not what's happening. And a lot of times 12 months have gone by and it's hard to understand what someone's mindset may have been 12 months ago. If it's a trader, why did they make that trade You know, in August and we're, we're talking about it? the following June, if it's expenses, who was involved, who, who was at that dinner, no, no one might remember yesterday, let alone six months ago. So what, what we try to do is push everyone toward continuous monitoring and, and it's through data analytics that this becomes possible. So taking the, a simple example, um, one that we're working on right now it, with a company that has your classic, it's every six months they, they pull time and expense data. We use this example a lot because we have some slides coming up. Um, they, they pull it every six months. They, they search it for duplicates. They do a couple manual tasks in Excel just to make sure that there's no, no fraud uh, or this any glaringly obvious fraud. And then they sort of summarize that data and it becomes an input for their financial purposes and their accounting purposes. What, what we're doing right now is trying to move them from this every six month process to closer to real time, closer to continuous monitoring. And the way we do that is first and foremost, not just pulling data every six months, but mirroring the data that they have available for time and expense and making it and making it available on a daily basis. So every day pulling from their concur expense system and then their internal uh, time entry system, pulling it into a data warehouse or data analytics platform that, that can be queried and leveraged day to day. The second thing is provide some level of automation or efficiencies to their process. So again, if they're doing these searches in Excel and maybe they're you're sorting all the expenses and looking line by line to look for duplicates or sorting by amount and looking at the top to see what the biggest expenses may have been, that's not very fruitful and it never has been. What 
what you know a real time or more continuous monitoring type of approach allows you to do is take those same routines, those same tests, looking for duplicates, but allow you to deflag at the moment that duplicate hits. Um, if if Michael Costa submits an expense and the next day I submit the same expense again because I forgot, um, let's flag that right away and 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 figure out what's happening before it hits the P&L, before it, it gets reimbursed to me, and then you have to go back to the employee for additional funds. If if my time entry is off and I haven't been submitting that, let's not worry about it at the end of the quarter. Let's worry about it real time to figure out what am I doing, what am I up to. Um, beyond that, data analytics and, and this idea of continuous monitoring, we're not just trying to do these simple routines, uh, having the data readily available and accessible on a daily basis allows us to be a little more thoughtful on what other risks and flags should we be looking for. So whether it be combining disparate data sets or in this case just having a good handle on two distinct data sets in, in a regular fashion, we can be a little more intentional. So rather than just look for duplicates, let's look at, at employee by level and see who has higher than average spend and maybe dig into that employee to, to determine um, is that employee just spending more than usual or is there some business reason for this employee or this department to be spending more? Or you know, if if you're looking quarter over quarter, if you do, we want to look back and understand that you're you had a really expensive quarter, it'd be good to know if if your current quarter is trending more expensive, if that's something that that the accounting team is looking for. Continue to if I could if I could just add something to this because I think I think this is a very important slide. I know it's a lot of visual stuff here, but what, what's important to understand, I guess, from experience is you know I, I've I've been the independent for dozens of clients in the past. I even had two settlement agreements myself with the government while during my tenure at Allergan. Um, you rarely ever see a report that has any real true negative findings, right? And why is that? Because the way these programs are set up is you identify the risk activities, you prescribe what the policies have to say, right? And then you develop an audit program that looks at individual transactions back to a policy. Right. So it's a roadmap. It's a very simple roadmap. Policy has these 10 requirements. Right. So I'm going to look at sales transactions against these 10 requirements. Well, it's set up to succeed that way. But what it doesn't look at is the behavior that is impacting the transactions behind the scenes. Right. By looking at a sales transaction in correlation with other data points, you don't you get a better chance to see what's underneath. Right, what's really happening, right? So just auditing a transaction against a policy to meet an audit standard that occurred six months ago, that has very limited value other than providing some assurance that the control in place at that time was okay. So, but you wanna really look at behavior of your customers, of your consumers, of your partners, of your vendors, et cetera, in a way that looks at the, you know, in, in a way that actually tries to anticipate where true risk is gonna occur, where your real exposure is, right? And I think this is a good illustration of that. Sorry, Mike, I, I had to no, jump in there for a minute. I appreciate that. And I think to that point, the, the roadmap you, you outline in the kind of your classic transaction sampling approach that's a roadmap that the actual bad actors, if, if they're aware of, they can conform with in, in a way that's not going to raise red flags. That's not going to um, promote their their particular activity to the, the level of needing review, but it will actually kind of allow them to, to do more damage behind the scenes than, than someone who accidentally trips a policy or accidentally does something that's truly benign. And I think you know, the goal in all of this is to identify 
these issues and not just to, to pass your quarterly audit. So I think that's exactly the right uh, message. I think we can move on to the next slide. I, I keep talking about time uh, keeping because I, I knew the slides coming and I think this is a simple example and one we've kind of touched on, so I'll, I'll move fairly quickly. But to, to the my previous point of someone who's not tripping policies, you know, it's very possible to understand that there's a $50 receipt threshold or a vendor can, uh, payments can be approved uh, by a particular uh, officer at the company under $10,000. Um, so therefore, if anyone knows these rules, you're unlikely and truly very unlikely to ever find any issues with, with people comporting with these rules. But it's the combining of the disparate data sets that we keep working on because it's, it's what's going to help identify the behavior or the, the rationalization behind this potentially problematic activity. So in this example, we're taking uh, your timekeeping system as well as your expense system, but also uh, the, the company policies on training and the, the data that you can collect around who has done their appropriate training every year on ethics. And take an example of an employee who is submitting their expenses below the thresholds um, and is not reporting more, more than expected over time, but hasn't really been completing their trainings, who perhaps uh, this is the second year in a row that they've either been late or haven't done it. You might want to start focusing on these, these employees, even if they're not raising red flags in, in the expense area, if they are raising red flags in this sort of behavioral sphere, to just start to dive into what are their expenses looking like? Why is this person you know, not making their policies or not uh, making their trainings on time? If their time entries are low, that they have a lot of time to be had, but they're not spending it in the appropriate places and start to color in the context of, of an individual or a, a department in that regard is again much more fruitful and gets toward that behavioral aspect of things that Jonathan has alluded to. Um, anything else on this slide, Jonathan? Or are you good to move? No, 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 no. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more when we do we, we have a little bit of a case study. We'll we'll walk you through. I think it'll help illustrate some of this as well. Perfect. Uh, next slide. Um, so now moving away from you know, our favorite timekeeping example, uh, the idea is different data sets and hopefully we paint this picture can be combined in interesting ways to to help color the, uh, the context of an organization of business operations or uh, whatever the, the issue may be we have a list on the, the right here uh, third party data uh, timekeeping cyber IT data you know who's accessing the system and where gifts and hospitality very relevant to healthcare um, who, who is benefiting from gifts and, and um, potential expenditures uh, outside of the company. Uh, health and safety data, sales data, uh, building access data is actually one we, we've used time and time again. And in the, individually, each one of these things can be interesting in the context of an investigation if something we know has happened. But if we're looking for things that have not yet been, been identified, it's often the combining of these data that, that is uh, most interesting. And I, it, I would challenge Jonathan or myself if anyone wants to take two of these data sets we could think of an interesting way to combine them and look for uh, a behavior or you know, paint the picture of someone who's, who might want to be, look, be on the lookout for if they trig, trigger certain things in any of these verticals. Um, the, the one last point on, on this slide, and I'm not one for reading slides, is the feedback loops help predict hotspots. So we've talked in, in the case of continuous monitoring, in the case of 
um, you know, reviewing data, even if you're doing it quarterly, which is not less than ideal, but if you're doing it more regularly and you develop these flags and tests to understand which expenses to be, to which employees to be watchful for, or um, who, who's not making their policy or their trainings on time or not performing their trainings virtually, that's interesting. But if you do nothing with that beyond uh, check the box or investigate that, that particular individual, it, it's not helpful. But the feedback loop, which is basically the idea of if this employee was interesting in August, let's make sure we know that they're still interesting in October. Or if uh, this particular expense category was high in 2021, let's keep an eye out on it in 2022. Uh, it can help, you can use historical data to make your flagging mechanisms and your, your analytics on, on current data more fruitful using what, we, what we've learned in the past. And this is particularly relevant for um, the, the surveillance, communication surveillance data I had mentioned earlier at that large bank. Um, you know, there's often times where trading activity looks potentially like market abuse, but doesn't often rise to the full definition of market abuse. It was abusive behavior, but maybe didn't move the market, or maybe it was market moving behavior, but didn't have that pattern of abuse. Um, if you just look at each individual trade in a vacuum, that, that's interesting, but not particularly helpful. It's understanding a trader who has time and time again been flagged for a potential review, but nothing's come of it. And understand that this, this trader just exhibits riskier behavior than most. And that can be okay, but it, it can help in the context of the broader conversation about that trader, understand uh, our risk acceptance policies and whether that trader needs to be coached or under a different lens. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, finally, we have a visual. So visual analytics or dashboarding uh, is part and parcel to everything we've talked about today. There's a, different, a lot of different ways to think about a dashboard and, and what can be represented, um, who the audience is, the type of data available to present, and even you know people uh, have opinions on the color coding, wh where it draws the eye. Um, for example, this my eyes drawn to the map, which is uh, always a nice place to look. But maps can be incredibly helpful, but are, are not always. So starting at kind of the, the top of this dashboard, which is a, a dashboard uh, related to uh, expenses and uh, I think yeah, expense activity across different geographies, service lines, and departments for a particular company. Um, the summary level at the top, you'll see this a lot in dashboards, and I think you know, it's helpful. It, it's the type of summary data that is pretty much vanilla basic data analytics, if you will. It's how many records are we talking about? What's the sum? What's the the average? Whatever it may be. But it's important because it, it provides the context for what, what we're looking at. We're not looking at expense data. We're looking at expense data for over 500 employees. And we're not looking at expense data that totals a million dollars for the relevant time period. Uh, kind of moving clockwise around the dashboard. Uh, we have the functionality of the dashboard. I think this kind of points to what we can do with it in this particular instance. So we'll keep moving to the composite risk score based on multiple tests. This is where you start to use your, your risk schema, your flagging mechanisms, or any sort of um, test you may be running on the data to help color the data in context of what you're looking at. So expense data, the averages up top are interesting, but when you start to apply risk scores by geography, by 
individuals who have maybe been promoted or, or flagged for interesting activity in the past, if you uh, view riskiness as a particular service line or even level in the company that has certain access, uh, all these things can contribute to a risk score. And that's kind of right in the center of this dashboard because it helps color um, you know, how risky we perceive this particular cut of data. Um, the bottom right, trend and analysis activity. You know, while small in this graph, your typical bar charts, line charts over time, um, this is giving you a longitudinal sense of what's happening across the time period of interest. In this case, it you know, kind of appears to be about a five month period that these expenses cover. And just from this very small thumbnail, you can see that the August 1st timeframe was, there was high amount of activity as well as July 1st. And then again, and at September 1st. So is that the beginning of the month or the end of the previous month that's causing a lot of expense activity? And if so, we should probably understand why expense activity is so high in these arenas. Uh, at the bottom of the dashboard, uh, filter capabilities. These are filter capabilities specific to um, the risks score that I mentioned above. Being able to toggle the data or filter the data by these dimensions helps us create a risk composite score specific to the business issue we're trying to address, but also allows us just to visually manipulate the data and explore it in ways that may reveal trends or those anomalies I spoke about earlier inherent in this data that we may not have been able to see at this higher level. So for example, um, one of the policies is uh, missing information. We could, right now we're looking at any expense that doesn't have the requisite information filled out, perhaps who were you eating with or um, where was the airline ticket to, uh, these types of missing fields are flagged and we can turn that on and off in our risk scoring mechanism here to either promote those type of uh, issues or minimize them to look elsewhere across the organization. Um, and again, circling back to the map, um, these types of visuals are great to help identify hotspots or areas in which um, we want to drill in. So in, in across the United States, the risk score is fairly low, but it looks like my hometown of Chicago and perhaps uh, the Southeast are two areas of higher risk in this particular map. And then also looks like South America or Brazil, maybe another hotspot. So maybe we want to dig into those specific regions and uh, uh, see what play actually looks like if we were just to pull from that particular geography. Uh, next slide, please. Actually, you can move. You can move forward. Yep. One more. Yep. Uh, we start to get into data analytics and, and the types of data. Unstructured data is often your narrative form, um, something typed out that we may need to parse or um, use natural language processing to get context from. Structured data being your classic Excel spreadsheets. Uh, next slide. Um, this is uh, kind of a, a quick overview of, of a very simplistic. Um, risk scoring profile. So taking the types of data we talked about, we're taking disparate data sources. Again, this is TNE, um, time expense, vendor names, as well as sometimes you take external data sources like social media activity or Pebblist and put it all together in one source, one data warehouse, one analytics platform, where we can uh, combine the data, enhance it means kind of combine it in our terms, uh, provide risk scoring based on the flags we've talked about and push it into uh, visualization layers like the dashboard you just saw or um, a case management system, such as the example of a 
trade surveillance activity, you would push the alerts that are generated from those risk scores into a case management system to allow people to um, review the, the highly promoted risks or the high, high scoring alerts and determine if they are indeed market abuse. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so I promise not. Yeah, I promise not to get too technical on this, but I, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the value of data analytics and why it's so important. I wanted you to get a little bit of a picture of what it looks like. The beauty of it is that yes, this is going to be an investment internally by a company to build out some sort of platform, um, you know, to be able to bring all your aggregate all your data to evaluate that data, run analytics against that data, report out on that data. However, the beauty of this is, this is data that companies already have. They don't have to go out and buy data. They don't have to source data from external sources to do it. Um, this picture here is, is essentially the high level platform format of what I built at Allergan. Um, essentially it is a, um, you know, it's got core components to it, right? It's got all of your source systems. Again, all of the robust data that any pharmaceutical company has nothing to do with the company I work for, but any pharmaceutical company will have sales data, prescription data, will have samples data, will have medical information requests, it will have payments data, et cetera. It'll have robust data in disparate systems, but it'll have it. Bringing that together in a, uh, like a data warehouse, a data lake, it's often, often called, um, <clears throat> where that data is standardized and, and cleaned and you make sure the data is complete and accurate. And then you can actually apply kind of a risk matrix to that that pulls different levers. Maybe you wanna look at risk in particular geographies or maybe you wanna look at specific products or service offerings. Maybe you wanna look at the types of engagements you have with your customers or the types of programs that you offer or the types of contracts. You can pull all these different levers based upon a risk matrix that sits on top of that. Right, and then you actually run your analytics. So that's developing with your data scientists and, and the data professionals. Uh, what are the algorithms that you're gonna run that's gonna correlate different data points together? And then you get the outputs and you saw, you know, one of the dashboards that Michael went through. On the back end, you have those, the, you know, those reports that will show you what are my outliers to my standards? What are the trends in the patterns? And then you can actually program it to look at it from different perspectives and different lenses, again, by geography, by customer, by program type, by payment type, et cetera. And that's the beauty of it. Once you put the, um, once you put the platform in place, you can manipulate it in any way you'd like to look at that data and have that data help identify for you, you know, where your key risks are today and be more predictive and directional about where risk will be. You can move ahead to the next slide. This is, I'll just go through this quickly because I want to spend a few minutes talking about the case study a little bit more, but this is just, you know, a, an example of a, of a risk matrix, just a piece of it that we would use in a, in a life sciences company. Again, you have your risk area, you have the regulatory requirements, you have the strategic insights that the data actually provides you, right? And then you use this to determine, you know, what are the risks we're going to include in our risk matrix? And then you apply a risk scoring methodology to that to weigh the different risks. And then you can categorize risks by different levers. So we talked about geography, we talked about product or service, we talked about program type or contract type, et cetera. You can then classify your risks differently uh, into these categories. You can weigh them differently based upon risk profiles in different areas, but this will be your fundamental roadmap of what the risk is and that that will feed into your algorithms that'll feed into your analysis 
uh, of that risk going forward. You can move ahead a slide. And I think what, what, what's important here is thinking through as you begin this journey, making sure as you're working with compliance professionals internally, are we asking the right questions, right? Are we, what are the questions that we need to ask on the front end here uh, to make sure that we're setting this up you know, the, the right way? Remember we talked in the beginning about two sides to the same coin. And these are some of the questions that we, we need to be thoughtful about, right? How does analytics fit into our strategy from a risk management perspective, right? How are we going to use it? What's the value gonna be? Is it just about risk management? Is it about business intelligence and insights? How do we want to use this data? And what are we going to do when we have the data, right? How do we, you know, what systems are gonna be exposed to this? What data is gonna be looked at, right? How do we approach a solution that's right fit for our organization, right? Think through what options will exist, you know, for, you know, for your clients and for your companies. Um, you know, in terms of, do we want to build this internally? Do we want to partner externally with someone to help us frame this out? Um, there are really no off the shelf solutions or out of the box solutions, uh, because this really isn't a one size fits all. You do need to take something like the framework that we built and then take that into a client environment and then tailor it uh, specifically for their environment. What's the buy-in that you're going to get from the business leaders, from the board, from you know, the, the executive leadership, that's gonna be critical in this process because they're gonna have different sets of expectations about what that data is gonna do. So you're, but the beauty of it is if you do this right and build it the right way, the outputs can be tailored for the different stakeholders. Your outputs are gonna be different for the business leaders than they are gonna be for board members. And you can actually program this essentially to have the outputs specific for a different type of stakeholder. And that's one of the beauties of a, of a holistic approach to this. You can move forward. So I just wanna spend a couple minutes uh, on a, just a brief case study that we, we've kind of set this up a little bit and, and we've talked a lot about the limitations of looking at data in silos. So I'm gonna use an example in the life sciences space, particularly as it relates to doctors in offices and, and their activity in offices. So traditional compliance programs will look at prescription data. We'll look at the prescription patterns that doctors have, right? And they'll look at a, we'll look at a doctor and they'll look at the doctor's prescription patterns. And they may see spikes or they may see, you know, they may see, um, you know, ups and downs in the data, but without the context of why that's occurring, it's kind of limited in its value. It may be because the practice doubled in size when they brought on a PA or another doctor. It may be because it's seasonal and because there's an increase in the number of patients because of the types of uh, conditions that doctor treats. You know, it could be for very different, maybe because there's a, a new product on the market. Right? There could be a lot of legitimate reasons for why you have spikes in silo data. But if you then look at that data, look at sales data, and you look at samples data, and you look at prescription data, and you look at the payment data all together. So now you're looking at it, what really occurs in real life, right? So if you look at the data of samples, for example, how many samples are provided to this physician, right? Because you could oversample a physician and that could be viewed as an incentive or that can be viewed as a quid pro quo, right? You can look at the types of payments you're making to this physician. Does this physician participate in speaker programs? Does this physician participate in our advisory boards? Is this physician on our payroll, um, you know, for article or journal entries, et cetera, right? So you can look at payments, payments in time. You can look at 
samples and free goods and in time, you look at scripts in time. And now when you look at things holistically, you can see whether or not the patterns of increases or decreases are being influenced by other data points. Right. So now this is where you start to look at data in a holistic way. You start to pull these data points together and you program essentially your your algorithms to say, I want to look at payment data. I want to look at samples data. I want to look at prescription data. And I want to look at it for for these, you know, the doctors in this geography, because you can also look at it that way. Right now. That's a, a US focused example. If you take that now out to the um, let's say to China or Brazil, you now have an added element of whether or not those doctors are also government officials, right? So you have a whole, and now you're gonna start pulling different levers in your, in your model that's gonna allow you to have some better insight into what's influencing and affecting the behavior of these, of these customers, of, uh, of your healthcare professionals in this instance, in this example, what's influencing the behavior? And that is more important than looking at a siloed transaction and comparing it back to a policy. You wanna to get to that behavior because that will tell you in real time, where are my outliers to my standards and expectations today? And by looking at those outliers, we can get in front of it and say, we have a series of outliers that could be troublesome because of the correlation of payments and prescriptions or payments and sales, right? So that's, you know, we wanna look at it that way. But also as you trend these outputs over time and feed that information back into the platform, you now can better predict where risk is going to be based upon behavior and activity. That will allow you to put your resources better in place to manage those risks before they happen, right? So if you have trends that say there's a correlation between samples and payment activities and scripts, we need to put better controls in place that limit or put caps on, right? The amount of you know, spend we have or the amount of samples we give or the frequency in which we give them, right? And we can manage that risk anticipating this now better. And that's where you wanna be as compliance professionals. You wanna to get to a point where you're not always just reacting and putting out fires. You wanna anticipate where the risk is, put the right controls in place and manage that risk and prevent those things from occurring in the first place. And this is just one example of how you can bring those multiple data points together uh, and actually understand behavior, activity, and look at things in real time and provide insight back to the business and saying, this is working well and this is not working well today, right? Not six months ago, here are the issues that you're having today. You need to look at your processes for how you're in contracting with customers. You need to look at your processes for how you're providing free goods or free samples, right? And you can give that insight now before this becomes a reportable event, uh, a, a voluntary disclosure, um, you know, a whistleblower situation. This is the power of the holistic look at, at, at data. So this is just one example. There's other information in this deck. I know we're, we're up against our time here. Um, I, I promised I would leave some time for Q&A. I didn't see any questions come through uh, on the portal here. Uh, but if you have any questions for myself or for Michael, we're, we're happy to take those. You also have our contact information. We are more than happy to spend more time with you offline if you'd like to discuss any of this and the relevance of this and your particular, you know, in-house situation or your client situation and how this could be applied. You know, if you have any questions now though, we'd be happy to, to take those.
We'll do the awkward silence for a minute. Um, so no more questions coming in on, on, online uh, and, and no questions coming in. So uh, what I'll do is I'll just, I'm appreciative of time. I wanna be respectful of your time. I wanna thank everyone for joining us. I wanna thank my colleague, Michael, for, for joining me today and, and helping me out today. I didn't have to talk myself for a full hour. We hope this was insightful to you again please reach out to us. If you have any questions, you wanna discuss this more offline, we did give you a lot of information here, uh, but we're happy to help you think through how to right fit data analytics into whatever kind of client situation you're thinking about. So thank you again for your time today and, and we look forward to, uh, uh, to future sessions. Thank you all. Thank you everyone.